we are uh, making our way through this study on worship. Uh, we talk a lot about worship in the church, um, not just us, but the church generally talks a lot about it. It's really the fundamental, foundational thing that we do as uh, Christians is we worship. And yet, it seems that, by and large, uh, the church today has at least either a poor understanding of it or our understanding can be fuller. Um, you see a lot of different things said about worship and, and practice in light of what we think about worship in many churches today. And so we want to try to understand what this is. And we've uh, been working through uh, a type of biblical theological survey of uh, the way worship is talked about in the Bible. We want to define our terms the way the Bible defines our terms. Um, and so we've, we've made it through the Old Testament, and we've been in the New Testament a couple of weeks now, and we've particularly been looking at Paul, is where we ended last week. For Paul, Christianity is not, or rather it is, a total consecration involving belonging, obedience, brotherly love, in short, total service and adoration of the living and true God. That is Christianity. And so last week we looked um, at 1 Thessalonians, uh, especially, or namely, in verse, verses 9 through 10 of chapter 1. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He had whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And in essence, what we mentioned there was that for Paul, worship here has this idea of turning from idols to Jesus. And the motivation for this turning is the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He, in accordance with the Scriptures, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we ought to have died, and yet, because He was a perfect, acceptable substitute and sacrifice on our behalf, He was raised from the dead, He is soon returning from heaven, and is even now rescuing believers from the coming judgment that is coming on account of sin. And so the service of God looks like doing His will, living as to please the Lord in all things. That we have been rescued by God from the wrath to come. And so we then want our lives to reflect that we are the people of God, distinct from and distinguished from those around us who do not name the name of Christ. So, any questions about that or thoughts? If you've had any 
time to think about this over the last week or so that I've marinated? Or anything I just said there that needs clarified before we press on? Cool. Worship in Romans, then. Um, Paul uh, writes 13 epistles um, found in the New Testament, Romans being one of them. Uh, perhaps one of the most well-known and beloved of his epistles. And in chapter 12, Paul commends his readers in Rome to offer their bodies as living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, before we understand what he means here, we have to note what he thinks about man's, mankind's refusal to worship God rightly to begin with. Because chapter 12 is uh, not the exact middle of the book, but you know, you're coming halfway into the story, right? And so, relatively quickly then, um, what is Romans essentially about up to this point? What is Paul doing? In Romans 1 through 11, more or less. In effect, he is stating and explaining how because of sin, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all men. That every man on planet earth, man, woman, and child, mankind, is under sin. Right? Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes on and says that men are without excuse because what can be known about God is plain to them. But they suppress the truth and they refuse to worship God rightly. In Romans 3 he says, famous passage, verse 9, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. So, Gentiles... Uh, are without God. Jews are not better off in themselves, for we've charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Right? That foundational to Paul's theology of worship is the reality that man in himself is in rebellion against God and is not right with God. And this refusal to worship God, um, for if we had time, we would read on in chapter 1 and verse 18, but he talks about exchanging the glory of God for what? Images resembling mortal man, birds, and 
animals, creeping things. Instead of worshiping God, man worships something else in creation, exchanging the creator for the creature. Right? That's the dynamic at play. And yet, in Romans 3.21 through 11.36, so Romans 1 through halfway, Romans 3, he's saying all men are sinners condemned before God because they won't worship God rightly. But then in 3.21 through 11.36, he shows how God has acted to transform this disastrous situation. Now it is possible for men to engage with God in a new way than they previously had. On the basis of Christ's sacrifice, offering worship that is pleasing to Him. That's essentially Paul's idea that he's laying before us in Romans 1-11. through Man has sinned, but God has acted to fix this problem. And so, if you are in Christ, he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. He's now drawing out the implications of everything that he's just said up to this point in the letter. The service he calls for here is the obedience of faith by those who whose minds are being renewed by God through His Word so that they may no longer be conformed to this world. The Apostle Paul is not calling for a mere inward consecration, but the consecration of ourselves as whole living beings. Living out our commitment to God in concrete ways in daily life. He goes on and speaks of the gifts in uh, different gifts that he has given to his church in uh, Romans 12, 3 through 8, 9 through 21. He, he speaks, you know, the marks of a true Christian is how it's subtitled in, in uh, the Bible that I have here. Uh, love be genuine, abhor what is evil. He's Working out now. Now if you are in Christ, this is what it means to live this entirety of your life before God. So what's happened here? Paul has transformed sacrifice. The idea of sacrifice. Remember we spent some time talking about sacrifice as it was one of the central elements of Old Testament life in Israel. The idea of sacrifice... He's transformed it from a daily slaughtering of animals to a life characterized by a whole person commitment to God lived out in light of Christ's once and for all sacrifice. Which is the foundation of my right relationship with God. And we saw this even in the Old Testament. Psalm 51, right? That... You know, the sacrifice of God is a, a broken and contrite heart. That's what he won't despise. So now it's not as much material offerings that we offer to God, but personal offerings of body and life that are lived out for God as our highest good and our greatest treasure. 
Yeah, it moved. Yeah, more. Is it me testing God or Him testing me? Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think the idea is not... Well, it's not me testing God. I don't know that it's... I don't know that it's... I I think the reader is the one doing the testing here. Right? But we're not not testing God in this sense, but testing um, circumstances, life, in such a way that we may discern with a renewed mind, we engage the world to determine, you know, that which is the will of God, right? In uh, how, in maybe how to apply the will of God in various circumstances, right? Is that mo better? That's good. Um, yeah, so we're I think we're doing the testing there and um, determining that which is, you know, what is the path that we should walk. It's we now we're not conformed to the world, the world, but we're transformed uh, into the image of Christ with a renewed mind, so that we're able to discern that which is good for us, what we ought to, to do, how we ought to live. And then Paul goes on and says, and here's what I mean, and he kind of explains further this Christian life lived out. Um, and he goes on even in, in chapter 13 about submitting to authorities, chapter 14 about relating to the issue of conscience and other Christians, weaker Christians, strong Christians, um, not causing, causing people to stumble, chapter 15, you know, is bearing with one another after the example of Christ, and then he begins to, to close. But um, that's sort of the idea of happening in Romans, is that um, the Christian life is now one of sacrifice of life, founded upon the once and all, for all sacrifice of Christ, who has made my relationship with God not only possible, but has established it kind of full and final. I'm not adding to my relationship with God. I'm not making it, I'm not making myself more right before Him with anything that I do. So that is the idea of this idea of sacrifice is very significant in uh, Romans. And so First Thessalonians, we see this idea of turning, serving God. Paul then unpacks sacrifice in Romans. Um, another book that we want to look at, Philippians. In Philippians, Paul, uh, he also continues this idea of sacrificial service. In chapter 2, 17, um, after he's said uh, he's in prison, but he's, he's thankful the gospel is still being advanced, and he, he sets forth for them, this example of Christ's humility, beginning of chapter 2, um, he, he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God works in you, to willing to work, don't complain, live as lights before this twisted generation. And then in 2.17 he says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And here he mentions the Philippians, uh, he, he mentions how their ministry to him by way of their faith expressed through fa- sacrificial service is that's the subject of verse 17 there. He speaks of their service to him by way of prayers and sending financial aid to him through Epaphroditus. In chapter 4, verse 18, he calls their gifts to him as a sweet fragrance and offering to God, thus showing these sacrificial gifts to be acceptable forms of worship of God in the New Testament. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so, he continues to work out this idea of worship as sacrifice. Right? We are not counting ourselves and our things as our own to be used for our own good and pleasure, but we count them as the Lord's. We are stewards of that which He has given to us. And we use them for the good of others, the advancement of the Gospel in the world. Paul also refers to himself back in 2.17 as a drink offering being poured out. Saying that he has an offering to make in connection with their faith and ministry toward him. Perhaps he's, he's just saying he's a, he's a modest drink offering added to the primary offering of their faith. That, um, that he's, he's blessing and extolling the Philippians for their sacrificial service to the Lord. God and, and his life, uh, I guess, in his mind, is pales in comparison to what they have done, um, which is significant when you think about the life that Paul lived, his sacrificial life. Um, and then in um, chapter He says that service of God is initiated and sustained by the Spirit. Finally, my brothers, 3.1, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, for those, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. The Spirit here, worship by the Spirit here, is trust in the saving work of Christ crucified and the implications of His death and resurrection. Because that's what Paul goes on to stress in those next few fairly famous, well-known verses in Philippians 3. right? Whatever gain I had, verse 7, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness 
from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain res- the resurrection from the dead. This faith, this throwing oneself fully upon Jesus Christ and His work is by the Spirit of God, Paul says, which is worship. Thoughts on that? Well, what we've seen so far can be summed up this way. The perspective Paul offers, or the perspective offered by Paul's use of traditional terms for worship. A lot of the things that we've we've not looked in the the nitty-gritty details and gotten bogged down, but the way that he has talked about worship, service, turning, sacrifice, all of these things, this perspective offered by Paul is that uh, the expression of faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and His ministries that encourage faith... Hang on, I don't think that makes sense. Let me just read it. The perspective offered by Paul's uses of tradition, traditional terms for worship is that expression of faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and ministries that encourage such faith are specifically the worship acceptable and pleasing to God in the Gospel era. Right? So he uses all these terms. The Old Testament had all these terms for worship that we talked about, and now Paul is using them over and over again in different ways, encouraging, ultimately, that worship summed up in this faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and His ministry in this Gospel era. Jesus' death provides the ultimate sacrifice of atonement, fulfilling and replacing the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so engagement with God through Christ is now the only way to offer worship that is due to Him. Alright? So what is, question to you, what is the transition that takes place from the Old to the New Testament? Mm-hmm. What's that? Yeah. Um, I'd say even in the Old Testament, there was faith in Jesus, but it was... What's the difference between faith in Jesus in the Old Testament and faith in Jesus in the New? What's that? Right. That, that in the Old Testament you have these laws, these rites, sacrifices, all kinds of things that helped point the people forward to a Redeemer that would come whose name they might not have known, who... Was he going to die on a cross? Might have been unclear. All of the very detailed specifics of it could have been uncertain. But they had faith that God was sending the sea to rescue them. So the faith was maybe seen through a veil. But now, in the New Testament era, Christ has come and has fulfilled all of those things. Yeah, and so 
Paul is stressing here in these different ways that, that Christ has, as Charlie was saying, has fulfilled all of these uh, systems that were in place in the Old Testament. And that now that this faith has been realized in Christ, um, we've moved from a shadowy, veiled engagement with God through these sacrifices in the Old Testament to one where there is no veil. That Christ is here presented before us as the way to God. So, to close, Christ has torn open the way to God through His own suffering and having His own body broken for us. And so Christians, from Paul's perspective, at this point, see worship as a life-encompassing activity, if you will. Um, And so, we are out of time. We will get to finish Paul next week.